Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Good morning and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Remember a time when you traveled overseas or moved within the U.S.? Venturing outside your familiar surroundings isn't always easy. It's a Sunday morning in La Paz, and I'm staring at a rack of dried llama fetuses. Culture Shock on this week's Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Every school year, thousands of foreign students come to the United States for the year. A homestay in a new country can be a profound experience, and not just for the students. Host families can also experience a bit of culture shock. Valentin Gardier is a high schooler from Belgium, participating in an AFS international exchange program. She's spending the year with John Penny and his wife, Dulcie Leimbach, at their Brooklyn home. John, why don't you just start off for us? This is the first time that your family has hosted an exchange student? Yes, yes, it's the first time, yeah. Um, it's sort of a new experience for us. Um, having Valentine here has been um, a, sort of an eye-opener. I mean, we always had a lot of culture in our lives, but we didn't have, like, have to deal with it on a daily basis. What have been the most striking differences? I, I think... That, Right off, the biggest thing is is the language. I mean, Valentine doesn't speak English very well, so she has a hard time, you know, understanding what we want to say, and we have a hard time understanding her. So, so that seems to like magnify the the differences, it put them in in stark perspective right there. Valentine, you're smiling. Has that been the case? The language barrier has that been the biggest issue for you? Yes, it's really hard to speak English for me, but I think that uh, every day I learn better. So, What prompted you to come to the United States? Because I wanted to discover the United States, and I wanted to discover the people in the United States, and, and really learn English. Before you came to the U.S., did you have an idea of what the U.S. would be like in your head? Yeah, sure, with the TV, with the TV show and the movie. But uh, it's really different. What is different about it? What didn't you expect? People are the, are, are the same. It's not really uh, strange here. But before to come here, I I, I knew that um, at the beginning uh, I have heart and uh, the people will be maybe a little bit different. So when I come here, I was a little bit prepared. What about the things kids do here? Is it different, the games they play? Yeah. Yeah, it's really different. In my opinion, the Belgian people uh, are more have more good time than the young people <laughs> here. I, I don't know, but in Belgium, I used to to go in party every Friday. But uh, here, the young people doesn't make that. One thing it's different is is that she mentioned was party, but the the drinking age is very different. There is no drinking age for for children it, when they go to like a bar. So they they would go to bars on Fridays and drink and have a good time and it wasn't the focus wasn't on binge drinking but it was but it was a kind of a social environment. Well, you obviously have two of your own kids here. That must be a unique thing for you. Do you have to lay down the law here with Valentine? Does she want to go out to a bar and you have to explain to her that you can't do that in the U.S.? Yeah, no, we're, we've, in the beginning, um, sticking by American rules for um, American residents. <laughs> you know, you've got to be 21 to go to a bar in New York. Valentine, how hard was it for you to adjust? You've been here for about a month now. Has it been difficult to adjust? 
yes, it's still difficult because um, it's the beginning of everything. So I started school, I started my activity out of school and um, I, I miss my family, but I like my host family, but I miss my, my friends. I, I need to have an affection of my friends. Are you able to keep in contact through the computer, telephone? Yes, but I can't because it's too hard when, when you keep contact with Belgium. The contact with her mother, it's good, but it, it gives, makes, her more, makes her sad. And AFS recommends that they, that they limit contact with, the, with their family in order to um, make the adjustment process easier because a repeated contact makes the student more homesick. What else have you been doing to make sure that the situation here is as comfortable as possible? Uh, well, we, we just try to make her part of the house, make her part of the family, just treat her like another child. Valentine, how different is this family from your family back home? There's not a lot of difference because it's a, a family life. So in Belgium, I, I dish my, my plate or I, I, um, and here I make, I, I, did, I do the, the rules of the house. It's the same thing. What kinds of foods did you have here for the first time that you never had before? Pancake, um, pancakes, pancakes. You for know, for breakfast. We had them for for breakfast, but she likes them for dessert. It's the same thing with waffles. She had frozen waffles. Yeah, frozen waffles. <laughs> what are some of the wildest things that you have found here? The crazy things. The people are really um, stressed all the time. Are you concerned that when you go back, it'll be hard to adjust if you should get caught up in the fast pace here in New York? <laughs> Yeah, maybe at the beginning I will be really fast in Belgium, but I think that after I, I return like me. Mom, let's get you in on this. The mere fact that she uh, recognizes that New Yorkers are stressed out was very helpful because I think I'm stressed out, and sometimes, you know, I think, well, maybe this is normal. But uh, so she takes it very easy. She goes to sleep when she's tired. She uh, realizes when she's doing too much, and I thought... This is very interesting. Maybe I should go to sleep when I'm tired instead of waiting too long to go to sleep. Is there any pressure on you? You said that sometimes you feel that <laughs> you have to do and say, you know, the right thing. But is there any pressure on you that you want to send her home with a very good impression of New Yorkers and of Americans? Well, I can't, I can't speak for all Americans. I mean, you know, just this one, you know, microcosm here of uh, this home. But... You know, I think she did come with some notion of Americans uh, based on TV. So uh, I think she is finding out that Americans actually are more complicated than people on American shows. Sometimes people think that New Yorkers are rude. Do you find that New Yorkers can be rude? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. But some people not, because some people speak with you and you don't know why, because just because they won't speak. Me, it's all the time like that. The people speak with me and I, I don't understand English. Sorry. So. People are nervous because I can't understand sometimes. And I, I see that also in the school. Sometimes maybe if a teacher asks a question and I can't answer because I don't understand the question, I think maybe it must be nervous. Have you encountered people here who speak French? Not a lot. A lot of people speak Spanish or English, but... Um, I don't want to, to meet someone who speaks French because I want to learn English. So, But sometimes when I want to speak uh, French, uh, I speak alone or I speak with the dog or, <laughs> <laughs> or I call to my mom. I, I know that I can't, but I need to, 
to to heard her voice and I don't know. I need to speak. That's Belgian high schooler Valentine Gardier. She's living in Brooklyn Heights with John Penny and his wife Dulcie Leimbach. We've all heard the stereotypes about cultural differences between the East and West Coast, but just how hard is it to move from, say, New York to San Francisco? Independence producer Dave Adox found out. A while back, I got an email from a friend. It was the text of a speech that Kurt Vonnegut supposedly gave to the graduating class at MIT. I found out later that the speech was actually written by a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, not Kurt Vonnegut. But by the time people found out about the hoax... The speech had already been made into a pop song that was hitting the top of the charts in several countries. There was this one piece of advice that really stuck with me from the speech. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. As a New Yorker who's daydreamed about moving to San Francisco, I wondered, what's it like to follow this advice? So I spoke with dozens of people who have moved between New York and the Bay Area. Here are their stories. I remember driving over the bridge and coming into the city just being wowed. And it was a nice day. It was sunny. It was beautiful. So everything was glistening. I particularly remember going down Steiner Street and just looking at all the Victorian row houses in wonder. You know, if I talk to someone from San Francisco or see pictures or see it on TV, like, I mean, I'll get chill, I'll get like a chill and I'll think, wow, you know, that was really great when I, when I was there on Treasure Island, I was looking at the city and, you know, what was, I am reminded of what it's like to be right there on the bay and, you know, feel the wind and, you know, I'm never going to be able to experience that here. When I first got there, I felt like I was in heaven. I felt like I had reached Mecca. And it was just so different. I mean, it wasn't flat. It wasn't gray. It was green. It was green all year round. And I was just very, very happy. That was Christine, Steve, and Nancy, who all moved from New York to San Francisco. I wondered what the first impressions were like for people moving the other way, from San Francisco to New York. Here's Jennifer Wilson, who grew up in the Bay Area and moved to New York five years ago to study drama therapy. I remember getting off the plane and feeling like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is like huge New York. I don't have a job. I don't know if it was the first day, within the first week of being here, I remember having this very moment. I was walking down the street, and I can't remember if it was in Brooklyn or in Manhattan. It was still really hot, and the garbage, I could smell the garbage. I heard this siren wailing, and I heard this opera singer practicing in her window, and there was this like opera singer wailing, and the siren wailing, and the garbage smell, and I was like, oh my God, I'm in New York. Like this wouldn't have happened in San Francisco. (laughs) It wasn't just the reality of her new life that shocked Jennifer. Other things about New York stunned her as well. I don't understand why people honk the moment a light turns green. It, It doesn't, it's not humanly possible for people to move that fast. It's like part of the culture, I guess, you know. People don't do that in San Francisco. People are very polite about that in San Francisco. They wait, you know, they know. They know you have to, you know, put your car and gear and take your foot off the brake and actually start moving forward. And on the subject of driving, several people had things to say about the casual carpool system. Here's Emmett Williams and Jennifer Wilson. To do that, to get into a complete stranger's car is a huge level of trust. And that was, it was accepted there. And I just can't imagine that, that people in New York trust strangers as much as they do in California. 
I think that ride-sharing thing is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. I would never get into a stranger's car and drive across the Bay Bridge. To be honest with you, sometimes I don't even like to get into a taxi because I'm like, I'm getting into a car with a strange man. I don't even know. What am I doing? You know, Let alone someone who, who knows there's going to be a line of people waiting to, to get rides. It just seems crazy to me. So I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that the ride-sharing system basically works and is used by thousands of people each day, to me, suggests a kind of trusting and welcoming nature. Everyone I spoke to mentioned, in some way, that openness and friendliness in the Bay Area. Here's Nancy and Steve, who both moved from San Francisco to New York. I think they're just going to a, a party, and all of a sudden people are, you know, taking their clothes off and going to the jacuzzi. And this is almost, I don't want to say it's common, like everybody has a jacuzzi, but it was more common than you would actually ever think. Steve, an urban planner, said that almost every day while he was in San Francisco, he would meet someone and have a new number in his cell phone. And Steve said this didn't happen in D.C., Chicago, New York, or any other place he'd lived. But despite a cell phone full of new numbers, he would still find himself on a Saturday night all alone. And those people he met, they weren't calling him. He and his East Coast friends speculated about what was going on. We would always talk about how how people were flaky in the Bay Area, meaning, you know, you would people would be friendly to you, but they weren't really your friends, and they weren't people that you could call up and and talk to or just hang out with. There were people that that you had met that that were friendly to you because why wouldn't they be? And in New York, that's not going to happen. Right? I mean, why would they be friendly to you? You know, who are you, right? I mean. Why would I be friends? There's so many people here. Why would I be friends with everybody? You know, we, we speculated, me and my East Coast uh, cadre, about, you know, why are people in the Bay Area this way? And, and people, people would theorize about, about the weather and how it's always nice and pleasant. And, you know, these people have never had to deal with a harsh winter. People from back east or the Midwest who have dealt with you know, the seasons and, and had to huddle with each other in close quarters. You know, you develop these close relationships. Whether it was the lack of close connections with people or being 3,000 miles away from their families, at some point, the fantasy these people had of life in the Bay Area began to fall apart. Here's Nancy talking about her last day in San Francisco. I was depressed because I was so ready to leave. I was so bummed out of the, with the city. I was so almost angry uh, with, with being in San Francisco. You know, I, I couldn't find a job. You know, I just felt people were becoming really flaky, and I just, I felt like I, was, I had failed, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was so depressed, not because of those reasons, but I was, de- I was depressed more because of the discrepancy or disparity between me being on this incredible high when I first moved out to San Francisco, like this is Mecca, then all of a sudden, I like just being... Get me out of here, you know. I can't wait to be out of here. I asked Christine, who moved from New York to San Francisco and back, about the quote I got in the email. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. That's probably the single most accurate quote I've ever heard describing anything. Um, Wow, that's astounding. The problem is, where do you go? Once you bounce between the two, now what? There's, like, really no in-between. 
The funny thing is that there are tons of cities in between. In fact, there is a whole country in between. But for a certain group of people, it really is a choice between these two places. Where do you think you will go? I don't know. Um, if you put the two cities together, they would be perfect. You know, if you put New York and you put if you put the energy of New York in San Francisco, that would be like a dream come true. Of course, then it would be largely uninhabitable. But listening to these people talk about New York and the Bay Area reminded me of this game we used to play when I was a teenager. You would list two things people really love, and your friend had to choose one of them to give up for the rest of their life. So we would create these impossible choices, like pizza or ice cream, day or night, candy or TV. I realized that for some people, choosing between New York and the Bay Area is just like this game. It's asking people to choose between two really different incarnations of perfection, and just like the game, it's impossible to be completely satisfied with either choice. Says I'm coming home for good this time. I carry the lesson. You're listening to Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. A visit to Jackson Heights, Queens is like taking a trip around the world. People of different ethnic backgrounds live and run businesses side by side. Here, it's easy for immigrants to retain the language and traditions of their native cultures and therefore sometimes hard to understand where their neighbors are coming from. But a local newspaper called Diverse City aims to bring communities closer together. I spoke with publisher David Anderson. David, how long has Diverse City been out there? Uh, We started to publish in 1999, and uh, uh, we went through until now to uh, 2006 and uh, issue 57. We're working on the 58 number. Tell me about this newspaper. It's published in many languages? Yes, it is. The newspaper is published in uh, uh, mainly English and Spanish, but we also always try to have Chinese, Bangla, some Russian, Portuguese, and uh, uh, try to reach out as the different communities. And that's a bit the challenge of the newspaper. It's we don't have a real target of group of people, so it's a mixed and uh, it's a little bit difficult to find what is the audience, who are the readers of the newspaper, because it, it can reach many different uh, uh, group of people. I would imagine it's almost impossible to have a target audience in Jackson Heights, Queens. And that's the double challenge. It's you have a lot of newspapers who are very community-oriented, they target a very specific group of people uh, with a very specific language and even very specific countries. And because of the center of cultures, we wanted to do something who is a little bit more open and has a, a broader audience. But it also the complication of the format who uh, challenges to uh, uh, sometimes have articles translate, but not everything is translated. Sometimes it's individual articles who are in specific languages. Sometimes uh, we, uh, we mixed uh, some lines with different languages on the same articles. Tell me about the demographic makeup of this neighborhood. Very complicated. 180 dialect and languages in Elmhurst, who is the most diverse zip code in the whole world, we, we think, definitely in the U.S. So, uh, and it's like 81 or 82 countries, uh, and you don't have one majority group or community 
uh, you know, getting like 50%. It doesn't exist. So everything is, you know, between 0.0.1 to 30, 35%, depending on the community. Latino community is still big community, but you have Chinese, you have a lot of Asian right here with uh, Bengali, Nepali, and, and people from, uh, uh, from that part of, uh, of, of Asia. And uh, in Astoria, you have people from Africa, from uh, uh, Arabic, and, and so on and so forth. How do these cultures intermingle? They don't very much. They don't. And that's a little bit the problem, and that's why we, we had the motto, it was building bridges between the different cultures. Because the community can exist almost without too much interaction with the other, depending on the size of the community. Uh, you have more, and, and I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more, uh, uh, for people, difficult to get outside of that community. And that's a big challenge. You have people who don't speak English for 10 years. Just walking down the street here, you have a Chinese restaurant, you have an Italian restaurant, you have a restaurant serving food from Afghanistan. It's okay. incredible. Absolutely, but you don't have any Bangladeshi who will go to the Italian restaurant. You have all of that together, but it doesn't mean that people go to that, to all of that. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like you have the patchwork, but you don't have people going to the different colors. Why do you think that's the case? It's a very challenging situation. Uh, I can give you another example. We had two young women who were uh, uh, talking on this uh, conversation club, and one of them was from India, and the other one was from uh, uh, Colombia or something like that. And, uh, and one of the, the, the women from India said, oh, you know, I'm going to go back to my country. And the, the woman from Colombia was like, why? I mean, you are free here, and you can wear the clothes you want and stuff like that. And the woman from India said, no, but I'm with my family, and you know, I, I, I belong to this community, and then the community go back, so I'm, I'm, I'm go back to, with them. And the Colombian woman didn't understand a thing of, of, the whole, of the whole situation. Where are you from? I come from France. I, I'm, I'm born in Paris. That's what I thought. Now, what was life like for you when you first came here? It was difficult. I took, it took me two or three years to capture New York City. It was very, very difficult. I mean, w what I say all the time, it's uh, we don't have too many, too much differences between the buildings, between the cars. I mean, we all have this more or less the same lifestyle. But the way I come from is very different. The, the inside, it's very, very different. And uh, even European or uh, French landscape has nothing to do with the U.S. And, and New York landscape. It's a very... No, I mean, I, I ask, where do you buy cigarettes? And she say, as a pharmacy. I mean, for me, it's impossible to buy pharmacy, to buy cigarettes in a pharmacy. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, and that was all my first step in, in New York. It was amazing like that. It was a shock all the time. So it took you a few years to get over that? Yeah. And to learn English and to learn the language and everything. Yeah, it, it took me like two or three years to. And after that, because I am very somebody who is, who is very connected socially, so I need to have my social environment well to be, to be well. So uh, it, it, was very, uh, it was very difficult for me. What do you do with this newspaper to help people understand more about the different cultures? I mean, one thing who always uh, uh, link cultures, it's always connected with, with, with the, the, the art or food or uh, uh, performances. So you, we always 
try to follow some cultural event because it's really, people react very well to that. And they are surprised. I mean, some of the uh, dance uh, are very similar from Asia to South America. I mean, you have a very interesting relation who, who, who is a little bit uh, strange and we, d we don't know where this comes from, but who, who exists and, and so people relate to that very much. David Anderson, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. David Anderson is the publisher of the Queen's newspaper, Diverse City. Sometimes the city you know best can still surprise you. After an extended trip through South America, native New Yorker Ethan Todros Whitehill found himself experiencing a bit of reverse culture shock upon returning to the U.S. It's a Sunday morning in La Paz, and I'm staring at a rack of dried llama fetuses. I'm trying to discern the differences between them. Is that one bigger? Is that one a llama, an alpaca, or an Area 51 reject? I've been in Bolivia for almost a month now, and South America almost too, and the dried llama fetuses Bolivian witches use for casting spells have become an unremarkable sight to me, much like the steady stream of finger-puppet-hawking children, wrinkled grandmothers begging next to the ATMs, and drivers who can't quite seem to grasp the concept of a stoplight. staring at the llama fetuses because I'm contemplating bringing one home when I leave the continent in a few days. I thought about buying an antique cloth, an alpaca sweater, or a ceremonial Incan dagger, but I knew none of these souvenirs would fulfill my desired purpose, to transport me back, on command, to a time when these horrible objects seemed normal. You see, I'm used to this drill. I grew up on the Upper West Side, and instead of Disneyland and the Hamptons in the summers, my parents took me and my sister to places like Indonesia, Guatemala, and Turkey. Every September, as I was buying a new trapper keeper with the other kids, I was also dealing with reverse culture shock. Thing was, for the most part, I really liked it. I loved that it took me two weeks to shower with my mouth open, and that I constantly craved rambutans a cousin to the lychee that resembles the denuded kushball. I loved how clean New York felt. Yes, clean, in contrast to the third world countries I'd been in. And the English everyone insisted on speaking in the streets annoyed the crap out of me. As I grew older and began to travel on my own, reverse culture shock became a quandary. I still loved it, but for different reasons. Now, I felt like it brought a fresh perspective to my life, as if for a few days while readjusting, I could be my own private de Tocqueville and view my habitat and behaviors with the critical eye of a foreigner. The problem was, the feeling never lasted, and I sorely wanted it to. New York, of course, would seem to be the perfect place to continue your international experiences. Plenty of cities have a little Italy or Chinatown, but how many have a little Egypt or India Row? But I wasn't about to go up to random people in Queens and say... Hey, you look Southeast Asian. Let's be friends. It's a lot easier to have cross-cultural interactions when you are the out-of-place one, the tall, white-skinned guy in a sea of shorter, darker-skinned folks, than when the roles are reversed. So I couldn't figure out how to elongate the feeling of perspective that reverse culture shock provided. I quietly scoffed at my friends from college who came home from a semester abroad and wore their new cultures around like a bright red kimono. I had enough multicolored Andean vests and Burmese manskirts collecting dust in my closet to know that for me, a material reminder was not going to cut it. 
So I left the llama fetuses in Bolivia. U.S. Customs probably would have put me on a special, not terrorist, but still really creepy watch list anyway. But I was still determined this time would be different. My Spanish had gotten much better than ever before, so I bought a couple of Isabel Allende books with the resolution to keep in touch with Latin American culture through its literature. When I touched down at JFK, that familiar feeling of strangeness quickly settled onto me. Seriously? I have to pay $20 for a steak? Are you sure you don't want to just give it to me for three fifty? Do you really need to walk on the sidewalk like you're being chased? I'm pretty sure you couldn't pay me enough money for my face to look like that at the end of a long work week. The Allende notwithstanding, however, I soon settled back into my city self. Making deadlines means dollars, and dollars mean beefeater martinis with three olives. When I stopped to think, riding the subway between meetings with an editor and a client, I felt like I had lost yet again. But then, a month after my return, I stopped into a bodega to buy a jar of sour cream. A TV was on, tuned to a Spanish-language talk show, and a skinny, good-looking guy made some cheesy joke about how fat his co-host was. I laughed, because the guy really was pretty pudgy, and put my sour cream on the counter. The bald proprietor nodded to me, then told me the price. Tres dólares cincuenta. He smiled. I smiled back, and we chatted about his store and the neighborhood in Spanish. It was then I understood. Holding on to reverse culture shock is not only impossible, it's completely unnecessary. The few days of feeling out of place in your home city are like those few delectable marshmallows in your hot chocolate. If you had more of them, they wouldn't be worth as much. But in those few days, you integrate the culture you've left a lot more fully than you realize at the time. Coming home from a few months abroad, culture shock is kind of a misnomer. You're thrown for a loop, sure, but it's not enough to shock that foreign culture fully out of you. Not the good parts, at least. The llama fetuses? I can do with that. Ethan Todras Whitehill is a writer living in New York City. He's now preparing for his next adventure abroad, a trip to Egypt to visit his sister. No matter where your travels take you, remember that you can still stay in touch with Cityscape. You'll find past shows, podcasts, and a bulletin board on our website, WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks to producer Jody Abergan. Have a great weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The South Street Seaport Museum features a fleet of historic vessels that includes the 1911 sailing ship Peking. It's one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. More information at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.